Our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 4. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. If you're visiting today, we're going straight through this book of Romans, and you've joined us as we've come to the fourth chapter. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses. And you'll notice verse 1 starts with the what then. So that really connects us back to the previous context in which Paul has been establishing justification is by faith alone, apart from any works. You can't boast about anything. There's nothing to boast in. And I want to bring out one other thing, too, about faith. It's not our faith that saves. It's Jesus Christ who saves. We're saved through faith in him. Sometimes I think we get confused on that point, and people could boast about their faith. That isn't what saves us. Jesus Christ saves us. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we have salvation. Also, there are those who say, well, you know, the Old Testament really isn't for the church, and it's really not significant to us today. Well, you'll notice in our scripture reading this morning that the Apostle Paul, in defending justification by faith alone, grace alone, apart from works or law, he's going back to the Old Testament, and he's going to refer to it. So here's what Paul writes beginning at verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. And by the way, that word favor there is the word grace, karen, charis in Greek favor, grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, notice that, who God justifies, the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose, now watch this, we've already had him say ungodly, lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins, plural, have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's a powerful series of verses right there. And may God add his blessing to the reading of them and the exposition later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today, and we thank thee for grace. This gift of grace and this gift of justification is truly amazing. The fact that you would declare us righteous and give us the righteousness of your own precious Son through faith, no works, no strings attached, is just humbling. In fact, it's more than that. It's mind-boggling. It's life-changing theology. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you for what you've given to us, the blessings that we've received. We thank you for this country in which you've allowed us to live. And we know, Lord, we're going into an election week this week. We want to commit that to thee. We ask that you would use your sovereign might and power to oversee this election. We pray that you would directly intervene and permit those elected to be elected who will help your hurting people. We pray that you would use your sovereign power to see to it that the election is fair. And we would ask that you would prevent anything deceitful or illegal from happening here. Lord, as your people, we have a responsibility to vote, and we do that, but we also cry out to you, because in the end, your sovereignty will prevail. So we would ask that you would please use your sovereignty to remove godless, evil, unrighteous propositions and people from power. 
put in power people who will make righteous decisions that will cause you to bless our country again. And Lord, we're your people, and there's a remnant of your people all over this nation that love you and love your word, and they need your help, Lord, so we pray you would oversee this election and help them. We want to pray for the sick of our church, Lord. We pray that you would grant healing to those that are struggling. We want to pray for the upcoming surgery of Joyce Alfenar this week. We ask for success in that surgery. We want to pray for those who need employment, give them a good job. We pray for those that need encouragement, grant them encouragement. And we pray for any who would need salvation that you would grant that. May they come to realize that through faith in Jesus Christ, they can have a righteousness that will take them all the way to heaven. Thank you for prayers, Lord, that we've just seen recently answered. And we thank you for the great and glorious God that you are. And we want to thank you for specifically being our God. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most glamorous movie stars of the 1950s and 1960s was Jane Russell. Jane Russell's parents were married right here in Kalamazoo in 1918. She became a devout Christian. She said she trusted the Lord at about age five or six. And then she dedicated her life to the Lord later in life. And she had Bible studies in her home in California where she invited movie stars to attend. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans and Donald O'Connor and Hugh O'Brien were some who regularly went to the Bible study she sat in her home. And one time she invited Marilyn Monroe. And Marilyn Monroe went to the Bible study, and then afterwards she said that Jane Russell tried to convert me to religion. And Jane Russell said, I certainly was not trying to convert her to religion. I don't like religion. One of the most dangerous killers that exist on this earth today is religion. It's far more dangerous than the coronavirus, or monkeypox. Religion is responsible for sending millions and millions of people to hell. And let's put this in some perspective. 150,000 people die in the world every day. 150,000 people. If we use the soul percentages that Jesus used in the soil illustration when he said that only 25% falls on good soil, which means 75% doesn't, what that means is of those 150,000 people who die every day, 112,500 go to hell every day. Religion. When Jesus Christ was here on earth, he included religion and false prophets and teachers in a statement that he made directly to them when he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Religion is a broad, dangerous thing. Religion is a broad, dangerous thing that can cause people to follow it rather than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the problem is, most people don't know the word of God well enough to see through that. So most people just go along with religion. One religion says you'll be right with God if you deprive yourself of things and live life like an ascetic. Another religion says you'll be right with God if you're baptized in water. 
Another religion says you'll be right with God if you follow our traditions and our works and our catechism. Another religion says you'll be right with God if you're in our denomination. Another religion says you'll be right with God if you read the version of the Bible that we like. What people don't understand is Satan does his greatest work in religion. He has religious clergy and religious people who tell people they can be right with God by whatever they've dreamed up that they would present would make them right with God, and they present to them religious ideas, and people buy it. But thank God for Paul. He saw through the facade of all of that. He was raised up by God to communicate the truth and communicate the truth about the grace of God. And what he says is being right with God has never been by works. It's always been by faith. Now, as I mentioned in Scripture reading, last time we looked at Romans 3, 21 to 31, and Paul clearly established that justification must come through faith, not works. And it's significant that he never expected the greatest challenge to that to come from heathen Gentile sinners. He expected the greatest challenge to come from that religious crowd, that religious Jewish crowd. It's not the sinful heathen who argue this point. It's the proud religious people who argue this point. And Paul has established boasting is totally out of the equation when it comes to justification. There's not a thing you can boast about. So Paul selects two major historical figures from Israel's history that they like to boast about. One of them is Abraham and the other is David. John Calvin says he does this to come to a confirmation by example. I mean, even these two great men couldn't boast about it. All of the Jews know the name Abraham. He's the father of the Jews. He's the forefather of the nation. They're proud of Abraham, even today, proud of the name Abraham. And all the Jews love David. Boy, he's still today considered to be a national hero for Israel. He was a triumphant military king. He was a man after God's own heart. He whipped the Philistines and united the 12 tribes of Israel, made Jerusalem the capital. There's no bigger name in Israel's history than David. In fact, there's a motel in Jerusalem named after him. It's the King David Motel, and it's located on King David Street. And if you look up the online rates for a room, you can stay there for about $550 a night. Abraham and David are two giants of the faith in Jewish history. Abraham was called a friend of God. David was called a man after God's own heart. So if anybody could boast, if anybody could boast about a relationship with God based on works, these two guys could. So the main question Paul addresses here is, well, how was it that they got that special relationship with God? How were Abraham and David justified? Were they justified by their works or were they justified by faith? Did they get into a special relationship with God by what they did or did they get into a special relationship with God by what they believed? And when you look down through these verses, there are three main evidences that Paul offers to prove Being right with God is not by works. It can't be by works. It has to be by faith. And the first evidence that he offers is the evidence of Abraham. See, what Paul wants to communicate to people is boasting. 
before God about something you've done to achieve salvation is nothing before God. Even if it comes from a guy like Abraham. Whatever way Abraham was justified is going to be the same way every human's going to have to be justified because Abraham's one of the big names, one of the great names. So what Paul does here is he proves Abraham wasn't justified by works but by faith. And there are two ways he proves it. First of all, what we may specifically conclude about Abraham, verses 1 and 2, what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If we search the life of Abraham, would we conclude that Abraham was made right with God by his works or by faith? Would we be able to conclude Abraham has such a wonderful list of works that he can boast about them and have that be a basis for his relationship with God? Could his flesh works, could the flesh works of a guy like Abraham actually make him right with God and then give him the license to boast? Well, let's analyze it. The story of Abraham is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. That's where it begins. Abraham is told by God, get out of your land and go to a land I'm going to give you. So Abraham leaves the land. And then God comes to Abraham and said, this is the land I'm going to give you right here. You're here. You're home. You stay in this land. But when you read Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 13, Abraham doubts that God's going to give him that land. So he leaves the land. He goes down to Egypt. When he gets down to Egypt, he doubts that God's going to protect him and Sarah, so he makes up a lie. He gets Sarah in on it. He says, tell people you're my sister. Don't tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Later, he disbelieves that God's going to give him a son when God promised him a son, so then he commits adultery with Hagar and she gets pregnant. She gives birth to Ishmael, and then he turns her over to Sarah, and they treat her harshly and send her out in the wilderness to die. Now, those are the true facts of Abraham's life. I'm not making any of those up. So what do you say? Was Abraham made right with God by his works? He was a man who doubted God. He was a man who disbelieved God. He committed adultery, and he lied. Those works can't make Abraham right with God, no possible way. So if you examine the works of Abraham, or if you examine the works of any individual in the scriptures, or if you examine the works of any of us, you would have to conclude the same thing. I mean, if the closet doors of one's life were opened up and put on full display to show everybody what we've done, our works would condemn us just as in the case of Abraham. As Martin Luther said, Abraham found nothing in his works just like we find nothing in ours. So we must conclude, just from analyzing the initial works of Abraham, no way that guy was justified by works, no way. Which brings us to the second way that Paul defends his point. What does the scripture say? What do the scriptures say? Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now Paul says, I'm going to prove my point. 
I'm going to take from the life of Abraham an inspired statement that comes from the inspired scriptures on the matter of justification. And Paul says, let's look at the scriptures concerning Abraham. Let's look away from our opinions and theories, look away from his life. What exactly does the Bible say on the subject of justification in Abraham? Well, the Bible specifically says that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited or reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. Now the context of the verse is crucial to our understanding. Abraham was in the promised land. He was somewhere around 85 years old. At that point, he had no physical heir. Even though God had promised him one, he thought his slave Eliezer of Damascus was going to inherit all the promised blessings. And God came to him and told him that he would father a son. He would produce a lineage as vast as the stars. Now here's the main point. Abraham believed what God said. That's it. He believed what God said, and God considered that, counted that, calculated that faith for righteousness. In other words, the moment that he believed that God was going to do that, God said, you are righteous. That's what saving faith is. It just takes God at his word. Saving faith is a faith that believes what God's word says about being righteous. So the main question for us to ask is, well, what does God say we have to do for salvation? What does God say we have to do for justification? Does God tell us we're saved by our works or does he tell us we're saved by faith? Well, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. John the Baptist said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. The Apostle Paul said, by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. The Apostle Peter said, we are kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation. I mean, when you look at scriptures, man, there are about 200 scriptures that testify you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So that's what the scriptures say. What do you say? How do you think you're going to get the righteousness of God? How do you think you're going to get into heaven? What's your conclusion? Well, if you base it on the life of Abraham, and if you base it on the life of the Scripture, you'd have to come to this conviction, the way I'm going to get the righteousness of God is by faith. Now, one of the things that is clearly stated here is that righteousness is something, in verse 3, that must be credited. Credited. The text says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is a credited righteousness. It is not an earned righteousness. That word credited is the key word of this chapter. That word credited is used 11 times in these 25 verses. In fact, the word that is used is logizomai. It's used 40 times in the New Testament. 34 times of the 40 times in the New Testament it is used by the Apostle Paul. 19 times this word is used in Romans. And 11 times it's used right here in this chapter. That verb credited means you have a charge against someone and you calculate something to their account. You judicially calculate something to someone. It's a judicial forensic term. It's that you're in the court of God, judged by God, and God makes this judicial judgment that you are calculated as righteous. It's accredited to your account righteousness. This is a key, key word. So in the matter of salvation is what this would mean is that a person 
would stand in the court of God and God would make a judicial calculated judgment that considers that person to be saved because he considers that person as having been credited with the righteousness of his son. So the question is, does one get that calculation? Does one get that credited salvation of righteousness by works or by faith? Well, the answer from the life of Abraham and the direct statements of the Bible is that one gets it by faith. If a person believes in Jesus Christ, then God makes a judicial mental judgment calculation that that one is righteous. If a person relies upon his or her own works or upon his or her own religion, God makes a judicial calculated decision that that one is guilty and condemned. Abraham believed God. And God made a judicial calculation that he was righteous. He became righteous by judicial calculation based on faith and not based on works. And there is not one thing he can boast about that. And by the way, that's exactly the point the Jews reject. This very point we're talking about. Justification by faith. Judicial crediting. They will not accept the fact that you are made righteous in the court of God by judicial calculation. They think they can earn their own righteousness some other way. In fact, hold your finger here and just go over to Romans chapter 9 for just a minute. And let me just show you a couple of verses that we'll come to later. But in Romans chapter 9, notice in Romans 9 what you read in verse 31. Romans 9, 31, which says, But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. That's what Israel thinks you've got to do. You have to receive righteousness by keeping the law. And then if you go over to chapter 10 and notice verse 3 of chapter 10, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, this is exactly the point of contention with the religious Jew. They don't accept that. They don't accept that you can just believe in something and have God calculate you as righteous. Now, I must admit, when you look at God telling Abraham to look up into the sky and see the stars, and if you can number the stars... I'm going to give you a lineage that will be as vast as the stars. And he believed God it was counted as righteousness. I mean, it does seem like an odd way to have God calculate you as righteous. But if you dig deeper into scripture, what we learn is what Abraham actually believed. In John 8, 56, we read these words. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And in Galatians 3.16, we read, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So you see, what Abraham believed was that through his lineage, a Messiah would come. And through his lineage, a Savior would come. He wasn't believing in just any baby for righteousness. He was believing that the Son of God would come who would give him righteousness. So in all reality, Abraham was placing his faith in Christ, and God calculated that as righteous. He placed his faith in Christ before he arrived. We place our faith in Christ after he's been here and is back up into heaven. But it's the same principle. It doesn't matter who we are, whether we're living then or now. You're saved by faith alone, not works. 
There's the first illustration, first evidence. It's the evidence of Abraham. Now the second evidence is the evidence of Paul's logic. Paul just kind of goes on a little diatribe here in one of the most potent verses you'll ever see in the scriptures, beginning at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. I want you to remember that Paul got this gospel message directly from Jesus Christ, and he is a logical thinker. You know, there are some people who think that Christianity is not for a thinking mind. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Christianity should take our minds to the greatest level of depth that it can ever be. People say, well, we just want shallow teaching of the scriptures. We just want our heart warmed. You better have your mind instructed. Paul's a rational thinker here. He wants God's people to be rational, critical thinkers. He doesn't want them to be foolish, simpletons. And there are three rational conclusions that God's calculation of righteousness must be by faith and it can't be by works. Number one, if one is saved by works, then salvation is nothing more than an earned paycheck. That's what he says in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due. Paul says if a person has to do anything to earn salvation, then salvation is nothing more than a wage or paycheck. If a person thinks that his works can save him, then one is basically telling God, you owe me salvation. At the end of the day, when I get to the end of the road of my life, you owe me salvation as a payment, as a paycheck. That kind of thinking will get no one anywhere in their relationship with God. The second conclusion he draws, if one is saved by works, then salvation is not by credited righteousness. He says, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteous, and if it's a paycheck, it's not credited. And that is the only way God justifies people, through crediting, through judicial imputation. He calculates it to the account. But the moment you bring works into the equation, one has just taken grace out of it. If one thinks he may gain God's righteousness by works, then he immediately eliminates the possibility of righteousness coming out of judicial calculation of God. And that's God's grace system. So let's ask ourselves a question here. How do you prefer to face God? Just answer that privately, rhetorically. How do you prefer to face God? Do you want to face God based on what he owes you for your works? Or... Would you rather face God based on a righteousness he'll give you and credit to you that comes from his son? That's Paul's point. And thirdly, he said, if one is saved by judicial calculation, it cannot be by any works. I love Romans 4 and 5. We were required to memorize it when I was in school many years ago. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or credited to him as righteousness. This verse is a favorite of Luther, Calvin, the Protestant reformers. I mean, they took that verse and they went to war with the Roman Catholics. I saw this verse in a jet airplane as I sat next to a Catholic priest, just shut this guy's mouth. I said, explain that verse to me. Basically said, I can't. So I said, well, I'll explain it to you. (laughs) Paul says, let me carefully explain this. If a person believes in Jesus Christ, just believes in Jesus Christ, 
There is a judicial court scene that takes place. He's credited with righteousness, and he's credited with justification without any works whatsoever. If he didn't do any works, he would still have that credited righteousness on his account. It doesn't get any clearer than that. One who believes in Jesus Christ is given the righteousness of God that's found in Christ. It doesn't matter if he did one good work ever. See, righteousness is not earned. Righteousness comes by judicial calculation. Righteousness that saves comes by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have to do one thing to gain this righteousness, it's not grace. It's not grace. These two verses shatter Arminian theology. In fact, it makes Arminian theology nothing more than heresy. Because some people believe that you maintain your salvation by your works, and if your works aren't good enough, you lose it. No one's ever saved by anything connected to their works. That's what they don't understand. They're saved by having a calculated righteousness that's been given to them by God that occurs the moment they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God loves to justify, notice what he calls them in verse 5, the ungodly. I haven't misread that. He repeats that again over in chapter 5 and verse 6 when he says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you don't see yourself as ungodly, if you've never seen yourself as ungodly, you can't experience what this text is talking about. If you're trying to become a better person, Oh, I've made some mistakes, but I'm going to be a better person, and I'm going to try to get my sins under control. You've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. Because none of that's going to give you a righteousness that will enter heaven. That righteousness only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing your works can do is condemn you. Your works cannot save you. This is so important to understand because when people wonder whether or not they have strong enough faith to actually save them, they've missed the point again. We're not saved by having strong faith. We're saved by judicial calculation. And when we place our faith in Christ to save us, we are classified by God as having his righteousness, the righteousness of his son, no matter what our level of faith. Because we've placed our faith in his son. God justifies the ungodly. And by the way, that doesn't flatter Abraham here. And it doesn't flatter David that he talks about in just a second. And it doesn't flatter you, and it doesn't flatter me, but it tells the truth. God justifies the ungodly. His third evidence is the evidence of David, verses 6 to 8. Now Paul uses the great King David to prove his point that salvation is by judicial calculation and not works. And David's going to add a couple more terms to ungodly, lawless deeds and sins, plural, that have been committed. Paul loosely quotes here Psalm 32. It is a psalm that was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba. And in that psalm, David said, how blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So David, in the aftermath of horrible sin, he believed that it was possible to have a judicially calculated righteousness that actually undid the judicially calculated sinfulness. 
That's what he believed was possible. He believed that the matter of forgiveness of law violations, and he had broken just about every one of them, and he believed that the forgiveness of sins was due to judicial calculation. He believed it was possible to appear before God in a state in which God calculated one as righteous, didn't take into account their sin. Now, this is important doctrine Paul's developing here. You don't want to miss this. You can miss eternity if you miss this. There are three great calculations that are in the scriptures that God makes, judicial calculations made at the throne of God. First of all, God calculates Adam's sin to all people. This is why we are all, if the Lord Terry is going to die, we receive the death penalty from Adam. Doesn't tell us how we're going to die, when we're going to die, it just says why we're going to die. We received a death penalty in Adam. God calculated Adam's sin to us. He'll develop that later in chapter 5 and explain why he did it. There's an important theological reason why he did that. Secondly, God calculates believers' sins to Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus Christ sin on our behalf. Christ never sinned. He never did one thing wrong, never broke a law. But God made a judicial calculation that he became sin for us. And thirdly, God calculates Christ's righteousness to the believer. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive Christ's righteousness. When we believe on him, we receive justification. And at that moment, God says, I can be just and I can be the justifier of the one who believes in my son because I am calculating my son's work on that cross to that sinner and I'm giving them his righteousness. At the moment God makes that judicial decision, you are declared righteous from all your sins. God justifies ungodly people. He justifies people who have transgressed his laws. He justifies people who have sinned. And proud man doesn't like that. They don't like that. They want to lay claim to something. Mother Teresa died of heart failure on September 5, 1997 at the age of 87. She spent her life doing good works for the poorest of poor in the slum areas of Calcutta, India. She gave people food and clothes and medical help. She did so many wonderful things that Pope Francis declared her to be a saint in 2016. One archbishop of Catholic Church said she had three spiritual pillars in her life. She took communion, the sacraments they called it. And in taking communion, she received reconciliation with Jesus Christ. She had a love of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and said that Mary would lead her to Jesus. And she served the poor. Because through her own words, she said this would satiate the thirst for Jesus on the cross. Now most people of the world said when she died, boy... There's a woman who certainly is in heaven. What a life of service. What a life of good works. 
Three years before Mother Teresa died, Jeffrey Dahmer died. He was murdered in a prison in Wisconsin. He was a serial killer who killed and dismembered 17 men. A little over seven years before Mother Teresa died, another serial killer named Ted Bundy was executed in Florida in the electric chair. He confessed to 29 murders of young ladies and was convicted of killing 36. Before Dahmer and Bundy died, They both said, we did evil. We deserve to die. But both of them said, we've trusted Jesus Christ to save us like he did that thief on the cross. No, all three are dead. Who do you think you'll meet in heaven? Who do you think deserves heaven? The truth is, No one. See, heaven is a gift by God's grace through faith. You could do good works like Mother Teresa. You could earn a great name like Abraham. You could be honored as a great king like David. Those works didn't save them and they won't save you. See, what we need is the righteousness of God found only in Jesus Christ, and that righteousness is only found by faith. Faith. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you'll believe in him, you will be declared righteous by God, and your sin case will be closed. Let's pray. If you've never invited Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, why not settle it right now? I would if I were you, if you haven't done it. You need to call out personally to Jesus Christ and invite him to come in and take over your life. I'm not going to give you the words to say. You need to do it. It's your sin. He's your Savior. Invite him in. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We thank you so much for the fact that we can be here today and celebrate a service that is specifically designed to remember the tremendous work that he did on our behalf. Lord, if ever there's a service that shows us only faith in the Lord can save, it is the communion service. And we thank you for the privilege we have of celebrating it today. We pray that your spirit will use your word and do a powerful work in people's minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.